0: We're going to take this again. And I'm, okay. going to be, I'm going to be professional this time. Okay. So oh, do I don't a, care. I'm going to do a great job this time. <laughs> Good. Okay, we're going to go in, in three, two, one. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you want to support the podcast, please head over to Locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. That's thelouperez.locals.com. Dot com. And I'm very excited to have my next guest, Amy Alcon. Uh, Amy writes Applied Science, translating scientific research into understandable language and then turning it into practical advice. She is also a mediator, both working for hire and volunteering in the L.A. City Attorney's Office, doing free dispute resolution for L.A. residents. Amy, thank you so much. You're over on the on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. Um It's about, I don't know, 8 o'clock right now um, on my end, and it feels like so late because uh, I have a child and we don't get much sleep on these parts. But I hope you're sleeping well over on the West Coast.
1: Well, all I do all day is sit at my computer, and then I go to sleep, and then and so it's just you know nothing's nothing exciting ever happens. So I don't know how I could do anything but sleep these days.
0: Yeah, well, um, for anyone who doesn't follow you, you're an awesome follow, uh, especially on Twitter and the stuff that you write about for uh, Advice Goddess. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about earlier, we were talking about uh, which glasses you should be putting on because you (laughs) you you wanted to have kind of like the smart uh, the smart thing going, but also. smart, but maybe a little uh, a little crazy. And I had to show you this picture. Um, here we go. There's there's this picture. For those of you who are just listening to the audio, you can't see this, but I'll tell you what it is. My son has a, has a book of the alphabet and it's all based in Brooklyn. And so you have like A, you have B, like B will be like the Brooklyn Bridge. And when you get to I, there's a picture of intellectuals and there's one intellectual. And apparently to be an intellectual, you have to be a bald dude with a ponytail who has, I guess, like a a glass of wine and a laptop. And then boom, you're an intellectual right there. So uh, Amy, you don't look like this guy at all.
1: This is good. If I were bald, I'd be so traumatized. There's so much going on now. Just losing my hair. I just lose it, lose it all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So um, how did you get involved with um, doing like uh, applied science? How did that work?
1: Actually in New York, um, It was an accident. It was a prank. Two friends and I gave free advice on the street corner in Soho as a joke. And because it was free, we thought, you know, the Lucy five cents thing, and we didn't think anybody would even give us five cents. So we made it free. We really undercut the price. Um, and so, you know, New York, it's free. We had a cardboard sign, but free, they lined up around the block. And people started asking us serious questions. Like we had stuff on our sign, like nail, bl- nail biting and directions. I mean, this is all we were qualified to answer. But then when people started asking us about breakups or depression, I thought, you know, oh crap, I better, I better learn something. And so I read through all of psychology and was sort of, um, un- was very unimpressed by Freud. He basically just made stuff up. And when you read like that, um, you end up getting, you know, an independent sense of what's of value and what's not. And I discovered Albert Ellis, who founded what's called rational emotive behavior therapy, which is cognitive therapy. It's a certain kind. And he became kind of a mentor and. I ended up just getting increasingly scientific, making my column more and more science-based because basically I don't think that you should listen to me if I don't say something that's based in more than my, hey, hi, I'm a girl with red hair and I have an opinion.
0: And um, I mean, nowadays um, it's a sort of a mantra. It's listen to the scientists, listen to the scientists. Um, so how do you determine which scientists to listen to?
1: Well, I don't listen to scientists. What I do is I look at Research, and I see if it has good methodology if there's a body of research that says the same thing, which makes it more likely to be a finding that's based in something other than hacked stats because mm-hmm. um, that's a that's a thing that's been um, going on now um, or, or people have discovered um, and um I use evolutionary psychology as a foundation for all my work, and this is basically um How we think now, our psychology now that's based on um, the solutions to recurrent problems throughout human evolution for survival and mating. How do we get along with each other and then leave children (coughs) who survive to pass on our genes? And we still have that psychology. We have iPhones and then we have this antique psychology that is perfect for life if you're a hunter gatherer running around in the woods and often imperfect for our lives.
0: Yeah, I think I often find with um, when I'm looking at, at science, sometimes I wonder, hey, am I just looking for the study or the little factoid or the, you know, am I just cherry picking as a way to justify an action or a behavior that I don't want to change? Like the it's sort of something with um, uh, if it, you could look at that like with diet. Um, and sort of how, you know, it seems like there are all these diet fads all over the place. And it's like, oh, if I could, if I just read this one headline that says, you know what, I should be eating, you know, 20 eggs a day. It's like, oh, well, I'm already eating 20 eggs. So, you know what, um, the science says that what I'm doing is is right for me. So I'm just going to go with that.
1: Most people aren't able to, they they're not interested in, they're not able to go pick through the scientific database and read studies. And so reporting... Is often really inaccurate. Um, there, there's something called absolute versus relative risk. And um, a tiny risk, you know, like it goes from 1% to 2%. It's like, oh my God, the risk is doubled. That's how it gets reported in, in a news article. And so people think, my God, that's so terrible. But it's not terrible, especially because you're going to have individual risk factors or lessened risk. know, based on your personal health. And so you look at it and you can evaluate it that way. And so I've spent all these years, um, I I just constantly read stuff on statistics and on vetting studies and on methodology and what's good methodology, what's not, um, what kind of replication should be done. That's where you rerun um, somebody's experiment to see if you get similar results. Um, And so all of this if you're not really um, diving in in this way, there's a very good chance that you're going to read something that if if you had any sort of background, you'd say, "Oh my God, no." And so that's why it's it's so hard to do this. And I look to people like a guy on diet who I think is very good is Dr. Michael Eads and Dr. Mary Dan Eads. um Mike blogs more than Mary Dan does, but they wrote protein power, and they, are science-based medicine practitioners, and they got about—I don't know—like ten thousand people in Arkansas dinner by eating, prescribing basically a low-carb, high-fat, uh, yeah, low-carb, high-fat diet, and that's what I eat. And really, you know, though there are individual differences, um, we all have a pancreas, and eating sugar and flour seem to be the most pernicious things that we can eat, and so. Do you eat less fat? Do you eat more fat. My boyfriend needs less fat than I do. My brain all day is reading through these very, um, you know, intense texts, and I'm writing and rewriting. And so I just I am a fat monster. I just want to <laughs> stick my head in a in a gallon of melted butter. I mean, yeah, don't we for, all?
0: For, for those for those who are just listening, um, uh, Amy is not literally a fat monster. She's a monster that <laughs> consumes fat, not, not, not a, uh, a, you know, Leviathan, uh, and all that. Do, I'm do, a slim
1: monster. I lie about monster. my weight though. And then I instantly tell people that I lied. So, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I noticed definitely with, uh, with diet, um, a few, a few years ago, um, it was pretty easy for me. Uh, I basically just said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to eat any bread. I'm not going to eat any, any of those kinds of carbs and, Uh, My stomach was flat and, and, uh, and I, and and flat, but, but also not like a, um, I didn't feel bloated. And it was, it was such like a, such a quick change too. Um, And, you know, nowadays it's like, yeah, I know what I need to do in order to go back to having like the flat stomach and all that. I'm like, but you know what? I'm sort of enjoying bagels again. I'm enjoying all that, uh, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, at least it's something where it's like I did the experiment on myself and I could say like, hey, you know what? Actually, I have a marker of like how I felt and how I looked that I can sort of, you know, uh, uh, look back to, you know,
1: Well, see, I'm writing a medical expose. Now I know I said I wouldn't talk about it. That's about as much as I'll say, but I see that sugar and flour are so pernicious and inflammation, they are associated with inflammatory processes in the body, which are associated with aging. And so um, I just, I make that trade-off that I don't eat sugar or flour. I eat one tiny ice cream. Because I um, I had this in my book on phycology, I write about willpower. And I look at um, how we're going to fail in our willpower. And so by doing that with this little teeny ice cream, I then don't feel deprived. So I don't go to a party and just fly into the cookies mm-hmm. and just spend my whole time ignoring the people and just being... You know,
0: like hand to mouth. yeah i happen to be i happen to be in a household with um a woman who is in great shape um she you know exercises a lot and she has an insane sweet tooth so she's always down to like have sweets and, and that sort of thing so um yeah and we might have to get a divorce if i'm gonna like you <laughs> know, get a six-pack again <laughs> to, to, to go back there uh on um yeah on, on your book you know unfuckology uh can you explain uh the title uh, of that book
1: well actually it was supposed to be called unfuck yourself exclamation point i wasn't sure if i could swear on your show oh, yeah, no, go well, for i it. said crap before instead of i think shit or something just oh, let, good, it f- let it i flow. just i love all the words including all the bad ones um so it's supposed to be called unfuck yourself and then somebody kind of Another publisher stole our title. <laughs> we had announced it for four years earlier. This happened. So now I, I tell my current publisher that um, I don't want them to announce the book until like 10 minutes before it comes out because I'm so afraid of that happening. People don't steal. You know this is a comedian. People have the same idea at the same time, but this guy had self-published a book with that title and then somebody else, another publisher bought it and they're like, oh, look, she announced four years earlier in the trades. Let's rush this to press and then you know, you, you can't have a book with the same name. So I did was change it.
0: What is a similar, was it a similar subject matter? Like, did you read the guy's book or was oh, no, it?
1: I didn't, I didn't read it. It, it sounds like
0: some kind of like, like you said, it was self-published. I wonder if it's like some self-published erotica where it's uh you no, know, no, I think it,
1: he's yeah. a, he's a guy who's, you know, somebody, he's like a life coach or something. Yeah. So, but my book is intensely based in science and it's based in transdisciplinary science. So I mentioned Albert Ellis, who was, he's dead now, unfortunately, but he was, oh, he swore all the time. He was um, a big influence on me. Um, he read my column in the New York Daily News, my first column, and he really liked it because I was very reason-based. And he, his form of therapy is rational emotive behavior therapy, that you're disturbed because you're thinking irrationally. And if you identify your irrational thoughts and you um, figure out what the rational thinking is, then you can be less disturbed, be happier, have a better life. And so um, I felt very sort of, oh, I have no credentials, kind of. I had that feeling and I was worried about it. And I thought, even though I read on my own, I always have just voraciously, I read my, my house is filled. There are thousands of studies on the floor, each with a pile with a rock on top. So my dog won't knock them over. <laughs> so it's not like I need grades. But Ellis said, um, don't go to school. It would be a waste of time. Um, he said, it would be a waste of time. That's how we talked. Um, you know what you need to know and just look at stuff on your own. And so that's what I've done. And in school, if, you're a, if you get a PhD, you have to do what I call narrow casting, which is study one area. And there's all this academic bullshit. You have to go to these meetings with these horrible people and they make stupid decisions. You just have to sit there and shut up, which I'm very bad at. So, um, I was thrilled not to do this. And this means, so my book is based in social science and cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary psychology, um, and medical research. It's based in all these different areas or more too. Um, and, and that makes it better value than somebody, for example, if you just read one study in one area and you don't know the corresponding areas that, um, sort of feed into that, you don't have a very holistic view that you're giving people. And so, because I don't have a PhD, there's a certain amount of credit I don't get. People think, you're nobody, what are you? Know, what are you? you don't have these credentials. Um, but there are people who look for that, they value people by their credentials, and they don't look at what I say and what I write. And so, um, what I try to do with everything I write is to give people something they cannot get elsewhere. And so, this book on phology, it's a book about what's called embodied cognition, And this is, I describe this as your mind is bigger than your brain. So your mind is your whole body and your actions. People talk about from the gut. Yeah. All of you influences how you act and your emotions drive actions, but actions also drive emotion. And so what's great about this is that it means you can change the way you feel by acting differently. You want to be a person who has self-respect act like a person who has self-respect. That'll be scary. You know, you'll have to speak up, grow a pair and all that, but you'll do it and you'll see, okay, nobody chased me out of the the coffee shop with a broom. She might've grumbled the lady I was, you know, grew a pair for and, you know, showed, you know, acted with self-respect to. But, um, people ultimately respect you and often give you what you ask for. If you just assert yourself,
0: yeah, that 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 reminds me. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with um, with Jordan Peterson and, and his book uh, Twelve Rules for Life, and and one of them it's uh, it seems pretty simple. It's uh, stand straight with your shoulders with your sh- shoulders back, um, and I've noticed it in in a in a in a different um, example where I remember I, I was driving. And I was, I was having a fine day. I was, it was okay. No traffic or anything like that. Not a problem. And then I just started uh, – I, I was thinking, what will happen if I just start cursing? Just for no reason. Just start cursing. And I started cursing while driving, and I started to get really pissed off. And I st- – like for, there was nothing going on except for me sort of manifesting this thing. And it's like, oh, I'm making this – I'm making myself feel this way because these actions that, I, that I'm taking.
1: Darwin said something. I may not get the quote exactly right, but I think he said the expression of emotion amplifies the emotion. So if you're angry, if you express anger, this thing, Freud, just bullshit, (laughs) catharsis. The idea that if you just vent your anger, that you're going to feel less angry. You feel more angry. You feel increasingly angry. But what I say is that, and forgive me, all you gamers, if I use this wrong, you can use your emotions like a joystick. That's probably wrong. But that you can. Basically, change how you feel by just acting a certain way. And you can use that throughout your life. I say your feelings are not the boss of you. That's my favorite chapter. And I use this recently because I was all sort of bummerino you know, from COVID and people were dying and businesses were closing. And I just wanted to face plant on the couch, yeah. but I need to exercise and I do intervals on a bike. And so, I just said to myself, okay, you paralyzed. Oh no. Good. Get on the bike. Get on the bike now. And actually I use profanity with myself. I'll be like, get on the bike asshole. Cause that's fun. And it, it's energizing right about um, a guy named uh, Steven's research in the book um, on profanity and use of profanity. And I really find um, that um, to be sort of self-deprecating with myself, Well, obviously with myself um, that Um, It feels um, empowering and funny and fun. It gives me some, like put some levity into whatever I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And, And also part of this too, speaking to yourself in the third person, very interesting research I have in the book also on that. This seems to give you distance from yourself, emotional distance, the way you would have if you were a friend talking to you instead of you talking to you. Come on, Amy, get cracking here. You know, that sort of thing is actually really helpful. And so all of these tools, this is the stuff that I just wish I knew in my 20s because I would have been just lived so much less stressfully and fearfully and wormily mm-hmm. than I did.
0: Yeah. I'm, I notice when I, uh, I'm, I'm 38 and when I look back, especially at myself in my 20s, it's, um, I almost don't know who that guy is anymore. So anytime that I'm recounting a story, I don't see it as myself. I see it as, oh, th- this dude was going through this and that, you know, that, that separation, that distance that I have makes it a lot easier to actually confront some of the worst shit that I did or stuff that I'm just, you know, uh, ashamed over. Uh, but also, I think I'm, I'm lucky too, in that I'm a, I'm a comedian, I'm a writer so i've been sort of gifted this opportunity to take some of the worst stuff um, you know from my life or, or you know just awkward stuff and use it and you know sort of like sublimate it and um, i don't know if that's a if freud would use that word sublimate or something like that i don't that.
1: really know but, that word i mean i know it but i don't it, it's not something i use what i actually um see in my own life and think that we should all apply once we get a little older or in general is just self compassion mm. And this is, um, there is a researcher, Kristen Neff, who does some really great work on this. And she said that, um, that one of the, one way to look at, at the, the stuff you've done that maybe you're not so thrilled with is that, um, being fallible connects you to other humans. And I see that as a mediator, just, we're all suffering and struggling and do really dumb things and sometimes really rotten things. And to me, what's important is that I reflect on what I did. Maybe I don't reflect on it um, immediately. Like in my twenties, I I didn't really have the insight mm-hmm. to reflect like I do now, but that you um, do better, that you say, okay, I'm going to do better. And then you, if you fail at that, you forgive yourself and just say, okay, all right, I'm going to try again. I want to do better. I do want to do better. I'm going to do better tomorrow than I did today. And, or if you have half a day left, you still have half a day to do better. Right. And and that's a really important thing. And that's the thing where I think, you know, in your 20s, there's a tendency to be really harsh. And once you've lived for a while, you just see all these people who do all these things. You know, we are, it's just human nature to do dumb stuff, stuff we're ashamed of. And then, okay, clean up from it. And understand that a lot of stuff, shame is interesting. Um, there's a lot of crap stuff out there unshamed. And the the um, there's research, this idea that shame, it's Helen Block Lewis from Yale from like 1972. Shame is I'm bad. And um, guilt is I did something bad. There's no empirical support for this. She just made this up. And this is the stuff I take such issue with where people just believe it because they haven't dug into the research base. Mm. And Dan Snycer and his colleagues um, at UCSB, and now he's somewhere else, They did excellent, excellent research, cross cultural, which is really important. So it's not just like 46 kids in a university, you know, in America in a psych class getting extra credit. They did it in India, Israel, and the US. And they looked at what sort of things make people ashamed. And shame, actually, it turns out we all are ashamed about the same things. They're a little different. So in India, if you pass food using your poo hand, which, you know, that's a problem. And then you feel ashamed and people rain shame down on you if they see that because that's disgusting and you could get a disease. So shame, it it, it centers around things that we shouldn't do that are bad for, uh, you know, other humans in some way. And Mm -hmm. so cheating, infidelity, cheating at cards, all of these things bring shame on us. And it turns out what Dan's research with his colleagues suggests is that shame is actually... Information driven and shame is um it's a it's a, a mechanism for avoiding social devaluation, and we have these internalized mechanisms. We know so if you're in America, I sorry I didn't finish my story. It's Adb, which it's is right. <laughs> my thing, I'm like a disorder. No, it's you know for me it's a feature, but it has some costs. Like I tell stories, like you know, like there's a fly circling, so um, I eventually get back to the thing. So in America, if you have poo on your pants, that's a shameful thing. So it's all, it's poo. It just manifests in different poo ways. In Israel, it's probably similar to America. So um, I have a dog walking around here. Come on. Oh, gross. That's so disgusting. And so um, it's, shame is information driven. It's brought on by the sense others could devalue us for a behavior. And so we either avoid doing those things that could bring on social devaluation, or if we do them, we try to cover them up. And so the shame is actually, it's adaptive. It's a helpful, functional, useful tool for us and self-esteem, which is also, that's what the idea of self-esteem is you like you. That's another thing. No well, well, functional well, reason well, for that. I'm well, well, oh, sorry. Well,
0: yeah, but before, before we get into um, uh, self-esteem. Interview, you're
1: running off with the interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on, uh, on the shame front, um, do you think that, you know, we've become a less uh, shameful society or people feel less shame now than they, than they once did?
1: I think that is some shame people... shame going away? Yeah. Well, some people... Well, okay. Um... What is that? It's you sort of need to narrow that down a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I I guess I would I would um I would think that anybody who, you know, say from you know, 50 years ago, say, uh, if they if we were to give them the ability to sort of uh uh go through the internet the way that we do and the stuff that they would find that people are, you know, putting out there about themselves, um, you know. It might be considered, you know, some pretty shameful uh, activities like the amount of people who have filmed themselves committing crimes and have been caught because they posted their the video on, you know, on social media, for example. But
1: that's exhibitionism. And okay. so, you know, th- they're thinking our brains they are not so smart um, that they you know, things we we uh, there's something that goes front and center. And maybe they weren't, um, you know, that that's not the idea of like, oh, I'm robbing somebody. That's sort of very far back. Oh, yeah. If you ask them, if you bring them into mediation, or we, we do these restorative justice mediations, um, where a, a person who's committed a crime talks to the person who they whom they victimized. Um, in that session, if you say to them, "Do you understand? You know how? You know um, hurt." and how injured Mr. So-and-so was and how much pain he was in, then they feel bad. But in that moment of, you know, filming themselves or videotaping themselves, um, robbing someone, I need to sit down, I have a dog, randy dog here. Um... I should, might have to hear but her, she is like, dog in a sweater. Yes. I'm that kind of A person. dog
0: just jumped over the screen. Right, yeah. Right.
1: right. In her sweater. <laughs> <laughs> so what they're thinking about is showing off. They are, you know, and that's, that's just front and center. So we don't always consider all the ramifications of our actions and that's just being human. Well,
0: here's another example. I don't know if, I don't know if this one fits in, but, uh, uh John Waters, uh, was writing in, um, Um, I I think it's in his book role models and he talks about how, um, uh, pretty soon there are going to be no perverts, uh, because basically everything, you know, that, that, that sexual is sort of, you know, given the thumbs up, like there's no perversions anymore. So he's, he says he's going to, um, and I'm probably, uh, (laughs) I'm not getting the quote exactly, but he's like, he's going to miss the days when, you know, you'd walk into the men's room and you would see, you would look under the stall and you would see, uh, you know, a man sitting down on the uh, on the toilet with uh, paper bags on I, on either side of him, and th- the paper bags would be for another man to stand in so he can get a blowjob um, without uh, you know without being seen, like a camouflage. And he's like, oh, I'm I'm gonna miss those days.
1: But see, that's not. But see, he's talking about perversion. He's, he needs to go to the Midwest. <laughs> you know, I mean, this idea that everybody is. Um, like we are on the coast. I live in Venice. This is, you know, one of the weird, weirdo capitals of the world. And I, I'm weird. So that's not a pejorative term for me, but, um, you know, the you know, where I grew up in Farmington Hills, Michigan, they're, they're not all that weird. And so, and the stuff about what he's talking about is just that now we see, we don't think that, you know, we don't look at gay people. They're just us. They're just, People, they just—I don't care how anyone has a se- has sex, and I wish they'd all shut up about it. And all this stuff of like, I get in trouble. No, it's like your dad didn't announce himself at a brunch. Like, hi, I'm Frank. I'm a bottom. <laughs> just shut up, you know. But we were all waiting.
0: Thing. We were all waiting for Dad <laughs> right. to finally come out and and, and do it, but it had to come <laughs> out during his eulogy. That I mean, think that, that's the kind right, of information yeah. you want to put out there.
1: No, but that's so sad. I look at—I used to get when I first started doing my advice column um, in the nineties, um, I got all these awful letters from kids in the South and their choice was, do I come out and be who I am, you know, or, you know, do I stay, keep my family's love. And I'm so thrilled not to get those anymore. I get maybe one every, I mean, I don't really get them. I, I, they, maybe it was like one every four years and it just has stopped. And so that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and that we see now nobody's like, you know, excited that the two mommies together live two mommies. It's just normal life now because we see it on television and everything. So even people who are more conservative are used to seeing that, um, more conservative, socially conservative. Um, I want to divide that from fiscally conservative. Um, so, you know, the stuff that, um, there's exhibitionism in every area. People try to do stuff where they stand out from what are norms. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they have sex, you know, you can make a career with the sex tape, probably not anymore, but that happened for a long time. Right. So.
0: Yeah. I think there was a time uh, I was trying to think about like when I was in my twenties where I bet, you know, someone would pay me to like watch me masturbate, but now I would have to pay somebody to watch me. Right. It's just one of those. That's it's one
1: of the a transition, right? Yeah, man. I we're
0: just ugh, getting old. There's an
1: Overton window of shame, and it's like the glass is missing. And like you <laughs> know, in terms of sexual stuff, but that's good. That's really great because people should just do what you need to do with another consenting person, and you know, just shut up because I really don't want to know, and also I don't want to get any of your fluids on me. I went to a sex club once with them a friend who came to New York from California and I was just like I just didn't want anything to fly on me.
0: <laughs> what, what what place was it was, was it, it the, was uh, the, the vault?
1: P- it was vault. underneath so I had friends who lived in that building on 14th street. Is and it related
0: to the box? Cause the box I think was another like club. Box
1: is vagina. <laughs> so maybe uh, vault is another like. A vault is a word.
0: Very, it's weird. Is it a very hard vagina? to get, to get into <laughs> the vault?
1: Yeah. There's like you a safe cracker. Lock and a little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the vault was 14th street, in that triangular building near the meatpacking district. I had friends who lived there on top and then we, we were bottoms. We went under the, to the sex club and then, um, Cause I just, you know, I just went, just was a thing to do. Cause I, I'll do anything if it doesn't involve eating bugs. And, you know, hurting anybody. Th- that so. That
0: is a different, um, not the vault, not the box, the hive. The hive is all bug eating, probably. for. If, if
1: oh, hive sounds, well, it sounds like a disease. And I recently had hives, so oh, full geez. body hives, very sexy. That's a great thing about COVID. If you get a really bad haircut or you get full body hives, I was like a Dalmatian with tiny red spots because I'm all white. And then red spots, it was horrifying. Um, nobody really needs to know. Because yeah. you just like cover up and, you know, on Zoom and...
0: Well, well, in the, in this club where people covered up at all, uh, what what was happening? Like, what, Oh, there what was is, like a man it,
1: on the floor. He was like being a dog with a ball in his mouth and the leather mm-hmm. and the like, then people were having little orgies in rooms. And then, you know, people were like woman be beating somebody, whatever, you know, like yeah. Uh, just for me, that's just like, okay, whatever. Not what I do, but you know, fine. No problem. Yeah. Good for you. You're, you're getting it on. You're having fun. Yay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I once said oh. to, I once said to the question, you know, Hey, hey Lou, would you, uh, you know, would you ever share your wife with another man? And I'm like, (laughs) I I don't even want to share a straw with another man. (laughs) I have
1: straws. I I kill a polar bear every time I use one.
0: I was was the kid where, you know, if I had a, a, you know, say a can of soda and a buddy asked me, Hey, can I get a sip? I would chug it and leave him a sip and then give it to him.
1: Oh my like God, this. I'm dirty. This is why I have, I probably have a better immune system than you. I'm dirty. I eat stuff off the floor. You know, at my house, I, I, keep, it, I keep it clean. I'm untidy also. It's an ADD thing. But um, you know, being dirty is good and sharing stuff. You know, basically the more you do that, then you get sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making this up. Um, I like to think that the, the dirtier, the dirtier, <laughs> the <sherrier> I am, <laughs> the, the more immune I am to whatever.
0: What, what are some of the, um, I don't know, some of the myths that uh, a lot of people believe when it comes to science that, you know, you've basically like, found oh, I'm terrible just at true. that question.
1: Okay. I'm terrible. This is like, if you ask me what my favorite movie is, all I can say is <laughs> blazing saddles, which is my favorite. Movie I just watched it.
0: I just watched it for did. the first time. Yeah, you're kidding. I, I, I did I, you grow
1: up in a cult where they didn't I, let you have movies? How no, did you not see that we before? We watched
0: all, we watched all different. We, we watched so many movies, but I'd never seen it before. And oh uh, I've kind of gotten on a, um uh, on like a Mel Brooks kind of binge. It's um, awesome. It was a, it was the first time I saw Blazing Saddles, and a lot of people have talked about it and said they're like, oh, there's no way you could make that today because of the racial stuff. And after watching it, I'm like, there's no way you can make it today because it's fucking insane. It is an insane fucking movie that breaks the fourth wall. It's so meta. At the end, there's fucking pie fights and gay dancers having fights with cowboys. It's in it's it's bonkers. It is. A That's crazy the kind movie. of movie
1: I love. So mm-hmm. I'll see other movies, but Airplane. Oh, also Kung Fu Hustle. Have you seen that?
0: No, I haven't seen Kung Fu. Oh my Kong
1: God, else. that's awesome. One of the superheroes in that, she's a, an evil superhero. She's a housewife and she is the housewife. Cigarette hanging out of her mouth, house stuff. She's, wait, Kung Fu, Korean, Japanese. I like that I don't quite recall this. Um, it must be Korean. Korean, yes. Uh,
0: I'm such wait, a cultural. It, I think Kung Fu, I think Kung is, Fu is Chinese. Ka- karate oh. is Japanese.
1: Yeah, but I'm sort of confused. It was made by, I think by a Korean director. I, I'm a little confused. You know, Asian. It's Asian. Let's leave it at that. But um, and so and she's rollers in her hair and she's angry and the house dress. I mean, it's just awesome. That's a little crazy. Also, *Hells of Poppins* is an old one. I like all those crazy bonkers movies. Oh, and the greatest thing, David Zucker. I had a meeting there. He did airplane, and he thought I was funny. That's awesome. So that was like that was like for me. Okay, so other people get a PhD. I get a meeting with David Zucker, and he thinks I'm funny. It's like I'm done. Cool. Isn't that
0: great. Yeah, I, I am. Awesome. Um, I have an episode um, coming up with a. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dean Cameron, who uh, is uh, is an actor. He, he was um, in a number of movies in the '80s that I uh, like, Summer School uh, and all that. And he reached out to me like a year ago, just saying, "Like, hey, I'm a fan of your work." And I was like, "Holy shit!" I grew up watching you, man. This That's is, so ins- cool. is insane. He's a really great guy, and and um, and it's it, it's been um great knowing him. Uh, definitely for the you know the past the past year, he's a great dude. Um, and that episode's going to be uh, coming out. Um, so maybe Sorry, I didn't at some answer point. that well. Oh no, 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 um, it's okay.
1: I'm bad at that. I'm just bad at that question. What I missed in my head instantly evacuates of them. Yeah, with
0: them, yeah. Well, them. What? Uh, well, uh, it, what's like the latest research that that. I don't. I don't want to get into the book. I'm you're going to ask me that question. Uh, I can't answer either. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 what's something? Although I that,
1: found us okay. No, I'll shut up now. Go ahead. What,
0: what's uh, what's something that people are like? Oh, the science says. The science says. The science says. Where you're like, well, actually, the you know.
1: Oh, and well, no, people just we think we have intuition about the mm-hmm. way things work. Well, a big thing actually is that there's this um, desire to say that men and women are the same. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is why I think I didn't finish my thought evolutionary psychology. I look at social science, a man,
0: a man would have finished his thought, right? There. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, no, but you, you never know. Maybe a man with ADD wouldn't have. Um, I look at social now. I forget what my thought was. Um, I look at social science and I say, is there some reason this would be functional evolutionarily functional The the finding that they have that they're saying, Oh, people are like this or do this. And so that's what I look at. And so men and women are physiologically different and our emotions evolved and our psychology evolved to correspond to that. It's same, so for example, men, um, it's more, um, it's optimal for a man more so than for a woman in general to have casual sex because a woman has higher costs. They're called obligate costs. Like if you have sex, what could be the greatest possible cost or that, what's the cost that you would have imposed on you? The obligatory cost for women. It's, you know, being pregnant for nine months. Oh, my God. Mm. And then having this child to drag around and feed. And then if she just had casual sex with some guy and he's gone, like, you know, being a single mom on the Savannah, that'd be pretty tough. No Seven Elevens, no baby formula. So a guy, for a man, the obligatory output from sex, for sex is a teaspoonful of sperm, like, and maybe wave goodbye. Bye. Bye. See ya. Thanks. That was great. You know? And so men, women evolved to prioritize seeking commitment and men who are providers, even women who want casual sex, when they have sex, this is John Marshall Townsend's research. I love this. So women who just want casual sex from a guy, the next morning he's gone and everything. They think, did he like? Does he like me? Will he call me? Now, this is a man they want nothing to do with, but they want him to want her. She wants him to want her because that's our, our emotional programming and it's automatic. And the same way men, um, they have a sort of lack of commitment model until there's, it's called short-term strategy versus long-term sexual strategy. David mm-hmm. Bust and David Schmidt's research, and that it becomes optimal for a man to seek a long-term strategy if he wants a family and not just to like leave children all over the place, but a family with a woman, a meaningful partnership. Sounds like you have that with your wife, the sweet lover. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or if a woman is so high, she's so um, high, high status mating wise that um, like she's a nine that he can't get her unless he commits to her. And so that will press a man to commit. Whereas, and it's a timing thing too you know, are you ready? Uh, Men in their 20s, just ladies don't even bother for the most part. Like if you're in the Midwest, some people marry, I keep using Midwest, I'm from there, but some people, you know, in more sort of socially conservative parts of the country and women who want children will get married in their 20s. And the children thing is a concern. Women should be freezing their eggs if they're all, I'm going to have a career first. And men too, men should freeze their sperm. I just oh, I do that
0: just for fun, just for fun. I, I mean, <laughs> like, I got I got you a have freezer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a
1: freezer. Why not? That's so gross. Well, well, well,
0: I, I just, so. I, I, oh, I just, I just want to say, um, you know, on the on that front, I met my wife. I think I was thirty one. She's in the room. Was I, yeah, was I thirty one? Hi. I no, she can't she can't hear. Uh, okay, so, she's deaf. She's a, she's a deaf. No, I'm sorry. I have my headphones. That's what she can't <laughs> But uh, I met my I met my wife when I was thirty one. So I was you know out of my uh, out of my twenties. And I think we were dating for about three to four weeks and I was going to move to LA. And even though we had only known each other for like three to four weeks, um, before I left, I was like, let's, do a, let's try to do a long distance relationship. And we, we, we did a long distance for a year, right? Now I look back at that and I'm like, I don't know who that guy is. I'm like, I don't know, you know, but I, I can't understand that, stand that guy, but I was obviously so enamored with this woman that I was willing to, and she was willing to, you know, to do this. Right. And it was, there was, there was something there and, you know, obviously, you know, how many, uh, you know, seven years later, you know, we have a baby and, you know, things are, wow. Th- things are going on, things are going all right. Well, so but- just
1: to tell men the age to freeze your sper- 35, that's when it starts the t- you better put it in the freezer. Cause after that, you know, sperm, people talk about women, like, you know, biological clock and all this stuff. And the eggs get a little like, yeah, sell by date. Well, guess what guys, you too. So be freezing that sperm 35 to 40, you know, because what happens is you can be more prone to have a child with birth defects or psychological problems. Mm. It can be harder for the woman to get pregnant. She can miscarry like because of like sort of like wanky, wonky sperm. So, um, that's why it's important for men and women to do that. And women need to be to understand also, you know, that's the thing in their twenties, you know, think about it. Do you want kids? Because, and, and also, do you want to be married? You're at, yeah. And this is the thing. Oh, so. Women don't like when I say stuff like this. Um, but you're at your hottest in your twenties. So if I had a daughter and my daughter wasn't that attractive, you know, no, I mean this is what see, people aren't honest, so they don't equip their kids with what they really need. If you're not that attractive, you're gonna be at your hottie hot hottest in your twenties. Most mm. people are. So, you know, find somebody then you know, and see what you can do. How do you balance things with a career and having a kid? And maybe you don't meet anybody and maybe you're in my twenties. I was just a mess. Oh, this is a, I'll tell a story from, that's um, in on fuckology that um, I had this, I've only had one sort of abusive boyfriend. I mean, he didn't like slug me or anything, but it was abusive relationship. And when I was in my twenties and I had a copy of Nathaniel Brandon's Honoring the Self, And Nathaniel became a friend. He was a self-esteem guy, but not in the sort of bullshit way. He is a therapist. Um, Anyway. This guy—he lit my copy of *Honoring the Self* on fire, and what did I do? I stood there and watched it burn. Oh my god! <laughs> but later, I bought a copy and I actually read it. Um, but so, if you are—I was immature in my twenties, and I didn't have my shit together, and mm. so—and that happened. So you may not be able to meet somebody, but so that's a good reason to freeze your eggs because maybe you can carry the baby to term, but maybe you can't. The eggs are a little like. Yeah, when you get I'm, to around to the age where you can find somebody
0: man i'm 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 uh, already thinking about you know they they say for parents um having like you know the birds and the bees talk is uh is awkward I, I imagine i imagine it'd be really awkward to have like a an addendum to say okay this is how babies are made and also you're not that attractive so we're going to have to find some ways you know well
1: I mean, you you can't say that no you you have to find a way to To help your kid, without I mean, if you tell if you tell your child that that's just one of those things that's scarring for life for many mm. people, and also I don't think that the sex talk. I mean, well, like, no, I right? mean, sex it's, is it's, funny, but it's no, kind but of a, like yeah, that, like
0: a cliche. It is sort embar- of
1: thing. But it is, it doesn't seem embarrassing um, right. because it's just sort of like this is how sex happens, and kids, you know, they used to. I think the hunter gatherer kids. I mean, it's not like they had a three bedroom house or anything. <laughs> and the savannah and some lean to probably. So kids were right there when their parents had sex, probably, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is just a thing now we're all freaked out about it, but it's just basically, this is your body. And, and I think if you raise kids, the kids I saw, I had a family that sort of adopted me in New York and I'd stay with them. They just talked about everything. And so that if you raise your kids that way, then you can talk to them and they talk to you because everything's just sort of like, mommy like her penis is like whatever and it's like you know what we're having a zoom call right now darren or whatever people name their kids brooklyn dakota (laughs) aristophanes
0: (laughs) the um yeah i I grew up with um uh, i have four brothers and um uh, we. My one of my brothers is uh 12 years older. So there was a time like he wasn't living in the house, but uh, at at one time there was you know four boys living in the house and uh, and my and my dad. So it's five guys and smelly. Oh my God! No, and and, and thinking about like you know like teen like three teenage boys. Holy like, crap! The amount of semen my mother must have had to deal with.
1: Oh my God. Crunchy socks. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 old faithful, I remember that, that sock um, that was, you know, right there. Like, oh man. It's
1: grosser to be a guy. It just is, except for periods. Periods are gross.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I guess they're, you know.
1: I'm I'm not all like period positive. It's gross. And do not call me a menstruator. I'm also not a shitter. Like, I love uh, when people say it's dehumanizing. To refer to people like in X way, so we're going to call you a menstruator. Really?
0: Well, how about the owner? I to be owner a shitter. <laughs> the owner of a vulva. How oh, about yeah, that? That's the best. I, just, I, just...
1: I tweeted about that saying, um, "I wanted a ferret for a while, and then I thought of getting a vulva, but I realized that it would come with the rest of the woman attached, and I don't have a crate big enough to keep her in." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I love those like prisoner or serial killer jokes.
0: Um, with the um, so. Uh, we're, we're hitting a lot of, a, a lot of topics, uh, here. One thing I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about was more of the, um, the mediation and, and how, how you got into, how you, how'd you get into that?
1: Oh, well, the truth is I thought, you know, <laughs> no, writing stopped like, like papers going out of business. And I was kind of scared and I thought, you know, I always wanted to take mediation and I thought I better do this because what happens if I'm 80 and I'm sort of disabled, you know, at least I'll be wise. I'll be disabled, but why? So I'll be like a head on a cart that can wheel me And Okay. The head's here. Everybody <laughs> stop lively. And so, um, but actually I love, um, I've always done what I do in these columns is conflict resolution. It's saying, do you see this person? Okay. So you're assuming that they see things this way. Maybe, is it possible they see things this way? And mediation is the same thing. And so I trained as a mediator. They had a free training for the, the LA city attorney's office, and I did that. And the deal is that you give them 200 hours of volunteer work. And now I am a behavioral science expert. Um, and I went into the training thinking I will be the roadrunner amongst the wily E. Coyotes of, of other trainees. And in fact, I was like the, the slow one because there was so much information and nobody read the homework. I read, all, I read we were supposed to read 98 pages, which is nothing beforehand. So I read that. I was overwhelmed and I was terrible. It's so terrible that when I had my interview before volunteering, they said, you know, we really don't think you're cut out for this. Wow. <laughs> to volunteer. That. You're
0: not cut out. I know, volunteer. right?
1: We don't want you to give your time for free because you suck that much. <laughs> and I said, listen, I really, really am so impas- passionate about doing this. And I said, I take criticism really well. This is the thing I, with my writing, I hire someone to tell me that I'd, not funny and suck and I'm unclear and I got the the science is just a muddle because then I can make it better. And so I told them that and I really was very, very open. And so I ended up getting one of the top awards. They give two awards for the top mediators in a year. And I got one of them after being like the slow bus person. Oh, to the extent that my first mediation call, you do intake calls. um, We did it in a conference room and normally you do it. So Caroline, my supervisor would have been there. But like the heads of the program were there listening in, you have to ask the person because it's confidential. But what I didn't realize is that that's not normal. They wanted to see like, oh, my God, is she going to shit the bed? But I did well in that one. Um, and so and Caroline told me that day something I did in that call made her know that I was going to be really good and OK and everything.
0: And what kind of um, you know, what, what kind of cases come your way?
1: Oh my God. It's so, I love the neighbor cases and the family cases. I, those are, those are my favorite. The the business ones too. Um, noisy neighbors. Oh, people, the fence, the fence is on their, on their lot. It's like two inches over the edge, or they're going to build this extension on their house and Mm -hmm. it's going to block out the view and, um, people, um, making noise. Oh, and the weirdest thing is, okay. So people of so you'll have two, groups, two, uh, it's clients, or we call them parties. P1 is party one, and they're the one who calls in, and P2 is the person. Sometimes there are more parties. Um, they'll be of the same race, and they'll say racist things to the other person, and then to me about the other person, it's like, oh my god, can't you leave that to the dudes in the hoods? Oh my god. <laughs> it's really, it was one of the amazing things I found out from this, but um,
0: Did you learn other- any new uh, any new racial slurs? Like, they were like oh, I didn't know <laughs> no. that you called
1: And also I just hate, I was bullied as a child and I hate unkindness and bullying of any kind. I hate Mm -hmm. racism. I love Martin Luther King, you know, and also the thing that you see through mediation that I saw is that, you know, many of the clients are, um, don't have money or anything and they're um, very limited means. Is is that
0: how they come to you? Is it, is it sort of like, um, like- why not through the courts? Is it because they, oh, they no, can't be- afford it? Or? Oh,
1: no. So this is an amazing thing. It's it's, it's Mediation is fast compared to and uh, less emotionally tra- traumatizing and doesn't cost anything, even if you pay. So I do mediation for hire. Um, that's vastly less expensive than a lawyer. And I also mediation. Basically, I do these private sessions, which sounds like I'm a, an escort, um, but these are sort <laughs> of like therapy without a therapist, whatever you decode a ring from the state. Or coaching or something, but I do mediations too. And it's in an hour from these private sessions. I can tell you, here's how your thinking is irrational. You don't need to whine to me for a year. In fact, that'll probably make things worse. You don't need to whine to anybody for a year. Hmm. Here's how your thinking is irrational. Here are actions. What if you take these actions? Are these will these work for you? Okay, you're probably going to fail. Here's how you're going to fail. We're going to pre-plan for that, and then you feel free, like you know, you can come back to me. But most people just they have one session, and I you know, I'm able to help them see their way, what their irrational thinking is, how they behave differently. You repeat that behavior and that becomes your default behavior. And some of, just to be clear, like in non-fuckology, I was a loser with no friends. And, you know, and so I was like that. And then I was in my twenties and I was a suck up and I transformed. Now I'm badass and I assert myself and everything, but 20% of me is still like, I'm a worm. When I not want to. When that comes was, out, that
0: like, was that yeah. worm? Was that worm? W O R M.
1: Yeah, Worm, like German verm. They probably say something else. Um, but <laughs> um, but then the other eighty percent's like, shut up, asshole. We've been through this, you know. And then so I pull myself through that, um, and so that's good. And then I have that self compassion and all that other stuff. But. What I was saying, basically, in mediation, because I, I do have to come back to the, <laughs> the, the topic at hand, that huh? um, I see that even people who are wealthy. So, some people would call us from Beverly Hills and want to mediate a thing with a, an issue with a neighbor. And um, everybody is suffering and struggling. You can look at somebody and say, "Oh, that person's wealthy," or maybe they have a kid who's going back into rehab, or they have physical disabilities. And just to understand that, you know, someone will be sharp with you on the phone or in a line or something. And it's so easy. It's automatic for us to be right, right back with sharp. But, um, I try to remember, and it's so important that people are suffering and struggling. And if you can pre-plan to not do that, to just breathe in for a moment and then also to spread some good, my previous book, good manners for nice people sometimes say fuck. They always have fuck in the title. Um, (laughs) That book is ultimately, um, it's about how we're living in societies too big for our brains, but the the solution is actually that we need to reach out and do small kindnesses for strangers. And if you do that, it's like somebody won the lottery because you're never going to see them again, probably. You did this nice thing, you put money in their meter or you got up from your chair to let them out of a cafe because they're carrying some stuff. And it feels so good because it's like this magic act. Oh my God. This person I don't know just rose up and took care of me. And that feels really good in a society that's transient, where we're isolated even more so now. But, you know, we used to live in the same town or the same house with our family. And now, you know, you live next door to people maybe you don't even know.
0: Yeah, I live in a, in a, uh, in a co-op in Brooklyn. And there are people who have lived on my floor probably for years who I've never seen before. I don't know, Um, and uh, there's that. It's actually it's funny uh, when I moved in here. I Moved in here about eleven years ago, and I was dating um, um, uh, my my ex, and we used to fight all the time. We fight all all the time, and the neighbors across the way. It's a a couple, a man and a man and a woman. Um, One day I was in the uh, elevator with them, and the guy asked, like, "Oh, you um, you know, have you done unpacking?" Yeah, because we had had just moved in. And the wife said, you know, uh, if you unpack, um, the chances of you breaking up are much higher. (laughs) And it was such a, it was such a, like I didn't even know what that meant. Like I didn't know what that, what it meant, but it it was definitely a dig at the amount that we were fighting. And uh, so that's like 11 years ago. I, I, my, my current, my wife and I, we did a stint in, in LA. We moved back. That woman still lives across the street and she can't stand me. Like when I walk, she just kind of like it, it's like uh, it's like she's smelling sulfur, and it's like wow. To her, I'm still the dude who was constantly like you know fighting. Yeah, and, I want to mediate that. Yeah, I yeah, want yeah, to mediate just,
1: that. No, and the thing is, like, do you understand that he was? I can see see part of mediation. First, I give my intro, in which I do all these things to keep you from saying the same thing 55 times, and do other things to not let you interrupt and everything. But then people talk. Each person gets to talk, and nobody gets interrupted. And the other person gets to talk. And then, um, you know, I, I explained, well, look, look what you, you guys actually, look, you, you know, here you are, you know, you sort of have some conflict here, but you I wouldn't say it that way, but you know, you have a lot in common. And also then I would get into, do you understand that, you know, he, that, that, um, Lou wasn't trying to, to harm you or bother you or anything. He was just suffering
0: at a certain point and struggling
1: and he and really look,
0: wishes you didn't hear him fighting every single yeah, night. So with that's emb-
1: He's embarrassed. Yeah. Like, and the fact that now, like, I understand, like, of course, like you don't want that in your life. Like Luke, you understand how they don't want, you know, that in their life. I would be a little more, you know, <laughs> off of my head. Um, but, um, cause I plan this stuff. I take a little break and then I plan sure, what I'm sure. going to say, but you know, and then, you know, the people end up, the goal is to have you empathize with each other and that they understand you were just a guy who could, people who are fighting, you could say, so if you said to your neighbor, look, look, you got to like, stop fighting and keep it down. It's not like that's going to solve your issues, but the right. person you're not getting along with you need to grow up or well, something, well, you know, well, it's and so fu- the-
0: funny in, in this, in, in that um, instance that I'm, I'm talking about, after we did break up, I rode the elevator down with the husband of, of the, you know, the, the woman who hates me. Um, and I said to him, uh, and because I was pretty distraught after this relationship. And I said to him, I was like, um, you know, I, I know that you, that you could hear us fight for a long time and I'm really sorry about that. That's
1: so great. You did and that. then
0: he and then he said, I don't know what you're talking about. No, never heard anything. Don't worry about it. So, and it was, it was like, oh, so at least he and I, you know, sort of see, Eye to eye on that.
1: But see, that's a dude thing. So men don't yeah. want to talk about it. Yes. Yeah. You he's know,
0: like, well, well then he asked me, he's like, hey, you know, um, how much semen do you have uh, in your freezer? He because- did not no, no. I want I, I want that. that to be a but thing. But you know what I, you could do that to be the new thing.
1: Okay, so do you think it because I always look at things I never assume. Do you think it is possible that they didn't hear you?
0: No, no, okay. I mean I mean it could because I had no other interaction with that um, with that lady other than so- Screaming.
1: (laughs) Okay, so if you wanted to repair the relationship, you you know the guy he just wants to pretend like nothing happened because guys really don't want to talk about it, and that's just and that's fine. And women should understand that I don't want to talk about it is legitimate, right? As you know, as legitimate as I do want to talk about it, and you have to find ways to meet in the middle, you know. So guys show their emotions, reaction, blah blah blah. But you could actually um, write her, give her some kind of gift that she wouldn't think was poisoned. Um, and that would be like appropriately Brooklyn, vegan, gluten-free celiac, gender fluid, whatever desserts, um, or something, you know, a bottle of, you know, even like a bottle of Pellegrino, which I left for my neighbor, which meant the world to him. And it's good because he had been in rehab, so I didn't give him a bottle of wine. (laughs) But I put a big pink bow to welcome him here. You know, that something like that, just to say with a card, not going all into detail, but just saying, you know, I had some you know, hard times or something before. And, you know, I'm sorry about the noise and I'm glad to have you as neighbors, something nice like that. Even though like, you don't know her for anything because that might clear the air. And then maybe she could say hello to you on the street and you could just, then once you, like if you, my fantasy and my dream is that then you do that and she thanks you like, thank you. That was so nice that you did like blah, blah, blah. And then that breaks the curse. But then you can mm. smile at each other and talk to each other because I hate that on the street when people walk past you um, and they're all snarling, yeah. and sometimes that's their own thing introverts they don 't want to talk to you, and it's it's not personal it's just like they don't want to talk to anyone um,
0: so so you you recently um, well uh, a little while back i guess uh, wrote in a piece in Quillette about a horrible um, situation that you were you know going through. Um, For one, um, I'd like you, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that. But also, is there, do you think mediation is at all possible with the characters involved?
1: Oh, no, no. No. So mediation, you have to be in good faith. That's the Mm. thing. Like, it's parties in good faith that are coming in because they're willing to try to come to resolution together through this process. And it really is amazing. I mean, for me, mediation catnip is that I get the neighbors who hated each other to hug at the end. I had that happened. Mm. That's the coolest. But sometimes you don't repair the relationship. You know, more often than not, with people, um, they just want the the issue solved. And um, but you get that solved, and you get a signed agreement going out. Wait, what was the question? I forgot.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, about uh, this the uh, Quillette article that you wrote.
1: Oh. Uh, so yeah, I had a felon living outside my house. Mm-hmm. This is early released from prison for COVID. He is a guy. I looked him up because I, the cops actually helped me as much as they could. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. But he had a restraining order out on him. He's 38, like your age, um, from a woman who was 60, who I think was probably his mother, like domestic violence <laughs> situation. So like, you beat up your mom. So he was in, he was in prison, early released August 14th, came right to my street. Now, what happened was um, our mayor, Mayor Wet Dish rag Eric Garcetti, I hate him. He's terrible. Um, I didn't vote for him. No one I vote for is ever elected. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, the police, he he stopped the police from being able to enforce some of the measures that they use to move on people who are violent or abusive. Um, and this, I understand that for COVID, like the parking like you can't, on, our, on my street, you're not supposed to park from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning if you have a vehicle over six feet high. Um, you have to move your vehicle every 72 hours. What else? There's street cleaning on Monday. So all of that was removed. So now the problem is, so you the police weren't allowed to enforce these. So normally what used to happen is that the, a, a captain or somebody at that level would have discretionary enforcement. He could say, you know what, this person is so abusive to all these neighbors on this block, and I'll tell you what the felon was doing, that we are going to tell him he had five years of expired registration. Oh, and this guy, it wasn't some poor homeless person. He had a really shiny Harley with leather s- saddlebags. He had a house in Riverside where $750,000, and then he had a VW van with solar panels at the top, and then his girlfriend was in there.
0: He really cared yes. about the environment, so you know, <laughs> way to go.
1: So... <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Our environment. So he came to my street and was in front of my house. And so now I'm writing this intense book. So I don't know if you're out there unless you make noise. This girl slamming, she's angry. This is before he got here. She was here a few days before slamming that door of the VW van and doing it at 3am. So then my dog would bark and wake me up. and then I mean, the van, the van noise woke me up too, but if that didn't happen, then my dog would start barking and then wake up my neighbor's my dog's trained not to bark, but there's what she perceives as dangerous. She'll do her little yippity up thing. That's like, Oh yeah, you're so dangerous. And then, um, the guy came with his Harley and then he started just running the bike. It had those, no exhaust, the thing where they take off the mufflers mm. really loud. And he would just leave it on for 10 minutes. And my neighbor next door, she's an infant, a baby you know, wake the baby. He'd do this all day. And then at night, just, and he'd go back in the van, just leave it to bother all of us because he could. And then when I said, I said something really weenie, like, please be respectful, like with the noise or something, lean over the fence because I have a six foot fence with a iron gate and everything that's got wood around it. You know, he then cranked the fumes to fume into my house and kept doing that. That's I mean, it's horrible. So the police, they kept coming out and apologizing because like, they were so sorry, we can't do anything. And then. One day, and he, was, he banged on my gate and did all this violent stuff. So I was afraid to leave my house. I, w- I took out the trash. The police were here. And I was like, do you guys have a second so I can out back because the trash really smells. <laughs> it was so crazy. And this was because the mayor refused to let them enforce, to have any discretionary enforcement. So the police did what they could. This one guy's like, I'm on at 3 a.m. Do you want me to drive past and... um Blare my siren and flash the lights at the van because it would show them police presence. He's like, look, it'll wake at the neighborhood. And I'm like, greater good. Do <laughs> it, man. Thank God hug you, but for COVID. <laughs> and so um, what it came down to is I was told I'd have to get a restraining order. Like, and and that's really I can't even tell you, that's hard. Right. It's 50 pages. You fill it out all wrong. I had this legal aid lady helping me. Finally, um, oh, the 9-11 call. This is a thing. I never wanted to have a gun. I'm a boob when I'm afraid. I'm scared. Um, I shouldn't own a gun. Um, I'll probably just shoot myself, even if I train for 400 hours or something. Um, but 9-11, the guy was pounding violently in my gate and screaming, threatening things. And I called 911, and they took an hour and a half to come. <laughs> it Am was that crazy? like... And now we don't call, I mean, this is a neighborhood filled with people. They're like video editors or whatever, retired. We're not, we're not exciting people with like violent lives. So we call 911 sometimes when like there, there was a homeless, there was a homeless woman who was screaming in the parking lot, being beaten up by two guys. So like call, it was like 1am or guys fighting or something. Cause there's a bar near here, you know, but cops would come like Pronto like in a minute or something or maybe take three minutes if they weren't that close But this thing of an hour and a half I was just like, oh my god, I gotta buy a gun Mm -hmm. I don't want a gun But you know What it it came down to it from talking to some friends I should get one of those little house in the prairie style shotguns because That way just I wouldn't kill the person but I'd disable them and spray buckshot all over the place And so maybe I'd have a chance of hitting them Whereas if I had a regular gun, I'd probably not know how to whatever undo the safety which I know from tv
0: I think I think you could um, you could totally kill a biker. I think you have it in you. I believe in you.
1: <laughs> I don't kill anyone. I just want to like be in my house and be boring. See, if they had been quiet out there, I wouldn't have known they you wouldn't were out know. there. Yeah. I wouldn't care. I, you know, My feeling is like, okay, you have a bar. You want to have an orgy in there and light yourselves on fire? None of my business. As long as your music doesn't boom, boom, boom into my pillow at 1 a.m. If, which you wanna, case, if you want to open up... I will fuck you up. If
0: you want to open up... <laughs> Uh, the West coast version of the vault and have yeah. it, in, you know, in a no, band. No, pro Go sex it.
1: club. Yeah. Like that's, I think that's good, wholesome, fun, you know, wear a condom and whatever. And, um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and how did, um, uh, how the the story end? Um,
1: oh, so he ended up, I was filling out, I was on the last part of this restraining order. And by the way, a legal aid because things got a little tough last year. So I was like eligible for that, which totally sucks, but was great this woman, Jenny, and she was so great. She was helping me on the phone and I sounded stressed out and I think I sounded like almost in tears. And she's like, just listen, you take a take a break and we're going to talk in 20 minutes or something. So I went and sat on the couch and petted my dog. And I heard this grinding sound and the guy was getting his, this is the shows he's not poor, getting his um, van. He was just here to abuse us. Van towed on a flatbed truck, AAA flatbed, you know, getting it towed off our street. Cause the cops had said they'd offered them they were awesome. This Adrian Acosta was our local community policing guy. He was really good. He offered them safe, safe passage, safe space to park. Their safe park, LA, and their bathrooms and their social services and everything. My boyfriend's like, what "Are you crazy? Your neighborhood? That's where all the drugs are. <laughs> they don't want to move to some like parking lot with police supervision. Hmm. Nobody wants to do that." And so they were just taking advantage and staying on our street, you know, and like this thing of. Um, People you know, wrote, some, the Catholic worker of Venice or something wrote to me that I was some compassionless person. Oh, I know, I wrote about violent vagrants on the beach. Hi, they are, they're these like crazy meth people. They're horrifyingly scary. But yeah. I've taken care of a homeless guy. He's now has a roof over his head. You know, for many, many years, I now just get his mail. That's what you can do for someone who's homeless. They need a permanent address. So I get his VA and social security mail. And then I priority mail it to him. He's in Illinois. I love him, um, you know. Looked after him and helped him get a way to earn a living and stuff, and and this um, Chris Rufo, he's done a lot of work. He's a Manhattan Institute scholar. Yes, and
0: he's written in uh, City he, Journal quite a bit. Yeah,
1: he explained something important, and that's I went to one of the dinners from Manhattan Institute, and he was speaking that um, about eighty percent, I think seventy eight percent of the homeless are mentally ill and or seriously addicted, and then twenty percent. Are like my friend, they just right. need some support. He just, he could never like pay bills on time. So he'd get his, he got a Winnebago and it got towed and stuff like that. But he is such a hard worker and such a good man. And it's not that people aren't a good man if they're addicted, but it's that he wasn't some criminal. He wasn't on the street because he was lazy. He was afraid to be in the shelters. He was a little guy. And so, but those people, the 20%, they're people who are down on their luck. Um, you know, they, maybe they lost their job, they had some health issues and they're living in their car. Those people, you give them housing and some social services and a suit to wear to job interviews and they'll get right back on their feet or maybe not right back on their feet, but they'll, they'll start the process and they're not going to just be perpetually homeless. And the problem is this housing first idea you know, that that they have, well, first of all, they only housed, I think like from 2016 to 1962 people in these like $700,000 condos. Hi, really? Can I have one of those? I rent. It's,
0: it's so, it's so frustrating. Um, because you know, it's, you know, reality is staring you in the face and there are people who are saying like, oh, you're, you're a compassionate, um, you know, you have no compassion because you don't want a violent criminal outside threatening you. And it's just, it, it, and, um, do you have, um, have you ever been on the, the Nextdoor app uh, or nextdoor.com? Oh, yeah. Twitter
1: for old people. Yeah.
0: Well, well, I, I was loving it when I, I started it. Uh, I, I got on the one in, in my neighborhood uh, because I looked at it as, as an opportunity to, um, you know, make restaurant recommendations. And, you know, and hey, does anybody know, a, you know, a, a good uh, tailor or something like that? You're super but, social. <laughs> but, but the same people that have ruined Facebook have gone over and ruined next door because they make it, you know, political now. And it's like, what the hell, what's wrong with you people? I
1: thought they're not allowed to do that. I don't know. There are all these rules in next door and someone, they didn't like something I said cause I'm libertarian. Mm-hmm. And so that's people. And some people, <laughs> it's just like saying like I'm Ava Braun. And so somebody, um, she, she wasn't they,
0: libertarian enough for me.
1: Ava Braun, <laughs> so. <laughs> somebody reported me, um, I'm a public figure. My column runs in the local paper with my picture on it, the same one that's on next door. Someone said not her real name. I'm like, Oh my God, Google me. My dog's taking the opportunity to be naughty. She's not allowed to bark. Aida, come here. Come on. Oh, she's being naughty now. Okay. Hopefully she won't keep doing that. She uses the opportunity with some person on for an extended period of time. She's not allowed to make noise, but she just does. That's
0: not her real name. There's no way Aida is well, her real name. Well, no, I gonna I'm I stole just-
1: this joke. So I'm going to, I like to confess I stole it from Katie, Kitty, per- Kitty Herzog, P. Herg, Herzog. I confused her screen name on Twitter with her real name, but um, she said, I rescued my dog from a breeder. So I did too. And the breeder was so awesome. Actually, New Jersey, she's a Jersey girl. Girl, mm. She's Chinese crested um, that I kept the name they gave her, which was really dumb because they don't need you to do that. I was like honoring the breeder. Dumb idea because Aida is the worst dog name. And when you go to the vet and you ask about your dog, they call her Ada like she's a cleaning lady. <laughs> so I really I'm like from verity, you know, yes. then I sound like pretentious twat. So, I am sort of pretentious twat, but that's I uh, think that know. I think
0: that would be a really great handle for um, uh, nextdoor.com pretentious twat. Oh, pretentious twat. I'm oh, Pretent- so tired of this libertarian pretentious twat commenting about <laughs> about all of this stuff. But I, I, uh, I bring up the uh, the next door app because um, I think a, a kind of a similar thing um, happened in regards to um uh, to the homeless in the, in the neighborhood. There was this guy Um, this homeless man who was living basically under the scaffolding, uh, that was outside of a church sleeping there all the time. He has so much stuff, you know, like just like, he's kind of like a a homeless hoarder, like just all this junk that he brings with him. Um, and, uh, he's a big guy. He's probably like six, three, definitely, you know, maybe close to like 300 pounds. Um, and he's an asshole. He's an asshole. Every single time anybody walks by him, he has something to say. He has something to say about it. And it's like, the way I look at it is like, look, dude, if you're going to be like sleeping in our neighborhood, like, just don't be a dick. You know, just like, I, I don't, I don't make an excuse for Wait, you. Mediator,
1: being- mediator interruption. That <laughs> I see that he is... Um- I mean, I think this is a guy I mean he's living on the street, he's suffering and he's angry and he resents all of you people walking <laughs> past there
0: yeah, but yeah, but here's the here's the thing um we have the inside scoop, the people at that church um were trying to get him um you know uh, better living conditions and actual you know other uh you know, other places there was housing for him there were people who come around like social workers and stuff like that he refused like this guy wanted right. to live out that that church but i i i mentioned him because on next door um a, a person in the neighborhood said you know i'm ab- i'm about the same size as that man and i was getting rid of some some old clothes um so i asked him you know would you be interested in you know me you know giving you some of my clothes and he said, sure. And he said, you know, I was, I was happy to, to help. You know, I saw another human being in, uh, in need and I helped him. And he said, yeah, everything, ever since I've, I've done that, every time I walk by, he curses at me and says like, oh, that's the motherfucker who gave me dirty clothes. Fuck that guy and all that. And he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned because that's, he's right on my way to work. And is he dangerous? Is he dangerous? And somebody else in the comment section said, no, he's not dangerous. Don't worry about him. You can't
1: really know that.
0: Exactly. And here I am thinking, wait a minute. I live down the block in an apartment and I'm married and I have a job and I don't shit on the street and I'm dangerous. I'm a dangerous man. You know, I could, you know. I could hurt someone if I, if I wanted I'm dangerous. to, you know, and, it, <laughs> but, you know, I could snap and hurt somebody or like that. And it's like, and I'm trying to think of the mentality of some people who can, who can look at a dude who is, you know, outwardly aggressive, cursing at people and be like, Oh no, there's nothing to worry about there. But yeah, no,
1: yeah. So you can't say that. And this is why in my piece, I just said, we can't have people living on the street. What happened to the standard? And there was this Boise court case and everything so there's housing first, which is just stupid because mm. you cannot house. They're like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, I forget the number, 50,000, 42,000 homeless people, probably more on the street now, thanks to Garcetti since 13, 2013. It's just skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, you can't just, oh, we're going to give you all an apartment. Oh, fantastic. Really? Why well, are we going to like, like, a, we have a money tree, we have an apartment tree too. It's, it's idiotic. But what we need, Jim Murez, who's a Venice resident, had this great idea of, well, let's put up FEMA tents like at the, on this land at the airport. And there's some bureaucratic bullshit FAA reason you can't do that. But there is a plot of land somewhere in LA and we need to have some sort of shelter, not great shelter and fantastic shelter. So it doesn't become like, I'm going to go get my free apartment, you know, and some people should like those 22% who can be helped. You know, Maybe we give them housing. Maybe they've shared right. housing roommates, blah, blah, blah. But there needs to be a way to say to people, and it's only by being able to provide to say, you must not sleep on the street. And you either go to social services, go to a church someplace that will house you or a friend, or you take the city housing. We're going to take you there, you know, in this whatever bus or something, because this is not tenable. We can't have these dangerous people because they could all be dangerous. Yeah, And it's also not compassionate
0: to the people who really need help. You know, then, and I
1: feel for this guy because yeah. I think that people. This is my assumption, of course, but that somebody who gets clothes from a man, and then you know, lashes out at him. Now, maybe the guy. See, it's respect is so important. Maybe, maybe the guy didn't clean his clothes well. You know, mm-hmm. people like they give stuff to Goodwill, like you know, like uh-oh. <laughs> they oh, figure like maybe it'll the smell will wear off or something. I mean, you shouldn't, but um, and uh, like in mediation, we have there's positions versus interests. Positions is that's the thing, your stated thing you want. Like, I want you to not put your trash can in front of my driveway and just leave it there. That's the thing, you know, we say we want, but underneath that is the emotion. And that's like, I want to be treated with respect. And so that's why I you know, feel for that guy. Cause I see that and that he's doing that. Like it's, it's a way maybe of lashing out and saying like, yeah, I need your old clothes, you know, like to sort of lash out angrily at the guy, but we don't know. And sure. that's why yeah. that man should not be like. If you are living on the street, like if you're walking through my living room, I could like hit you with a small kettlebell or do whatever. Well, well and I, I mean, if-
0: and and I felt bad too because um, he's an older gentleman. He's probably at, at least like in his in his mid forties, and um, he obviously doesn't have a freezer in which to keep his sperm. You know, like you said, you know, it's very <laughs> important. I think that for me, that's going to be the the running theme. I'm not going to be able to think about. Our conversation sperm. right now without thinking of, man, I, did I freeze enough sperm this morning?
1: Sperm sickles. Yeah, right. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my so God. that, that needs to happen. That shelter yeah. first thing. And just th- that we have these kinds of, th- th- the people that we elect in California governor hair gel who goes to the French restaurant. Oh, the best was some guy in OC hood, some like strip mall, like ethnic restaurant, maybe Thai or something. I couldn't tell because it was covered up. He put a banner over his strip mall restaurant sign that said french laundry because like hey get to stay open if you're like ritzy ritzy yeah like nancy so i have this is my did you see queen's gambit
0: um i i i would check in every now and then my wife was watching it
1: okay so i watched this because like you know how black girls have black dolls they're like that became more of a thing red-haired girls no there's not a representative doll for people like me born in 1964 so i had raggedy ann so i watched that show for two reasons because it's like an orphan makes good and she's smart uh, well that's i guess a few and then also she's red hair it was like mm. a representative actress and so I, my hair is like because i have covid hair it's like the person who cuts my hair i'm not nancy Pelosi, obviously so the person who cuts my hair and moved to san francisco like a week before march 15th you know you're all like sensitive about well, your I, hair
0: i got my hair cut today so I, i'm i'm you did by I'm, whom yeah. do you have a Floby? A f- no, no, I, I went to. What is a flow be? What is that? George
1: Clooney has one. It's a vacuum cleaner hair thing that cut, you can cut your own
0: hair with. How dare you! I Charmaine, who cut my hair, did a fantastic job.
1: Charmaine, I love that. It's yeah. sharpay. Um, um, um,
0: yeah. Well, I, I kind of have a little bit of a. I have some product in it, so I got a little bit of the Gavin Newsom <laughs> sort of thing. But I right. don't have the awkward smile when I'm trying to apologize. Oh, right, that dude. Also, ooh, what's going my hair
1: lady? She's so awesome. She moved up there she's going to come back here like every few months, whatever. But, um, right then she had a job at a different, a new salon. They were so excited for her. And then the salon's closed. And so she's now with her parents in Michigan Well, wow. Nancy Pelosi's getting her haircut. Like I had this cute, like curly, like Jufro thing going on. And now this is my grown out hair. And then Queen's Gambit, as soon as I saw that I went in the bathroom with the curling and it was like, Oh, no. yeah. look.
0: <laughs> so- I, 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 uh, uh part of me, I, I, I want to think of the, um, all of the politicians that are, that are basically not abiding by the rules that everyone else does, they're, they're not hypocrites, they're heroes. They are putting themselves, their bodies, their health on the line they're basically saying look i know there's a curfew i'm out past the curfew i know you're supposed to wear a mask i'm not wearing a mask i know you're not supposed to, i know you're supposed to social distance i'm not social distancing why because i'm calling covid i'm saying come here fight me now i'm going to take you out with my bare hands uh, um uh amy uh thank you so much for for doing this for um, having this conversation with me um uh, for, for those of you who are, who are listening or just, um, experiencing Amy for the first time, um, she's brilliant and she's so much fun. And, uh, is there anything, uh, you'd like to plug?
1: Oh yeah. Buy my book. I should have it with me, but, um, unfuckology, yeah. a field guide to living with guts and confidence It's in trade paperback, makes it affordable for everyone. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me. This is really fun.